today we come to chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. We generally do team preaching here at Paris. Um, I've actually got um, a significant break this summer, even with that, which I'm really thankful for. Um, Aaron Ferguson is going to be preaching. He is a deacon in Paris. He's an MC leader. He's also one of the new additions to our staff, which I'm really excited about. Um, the, the passage that um, he's talking about today um, requires a, a, real, a strong mind, you know, to understand all the nuances and the various arguments and all of that. Um, he's got that. He's got an MDiv from Midwestern Seminary. Um, ultra confident in that, but also just a really great heart to, to handle sensitivity. I'm really thankful for him and his willingness to take this on. And so, what will you read with me? Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32. If you're able to stand, please do, and we'll read it together. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Aaron, come on. Father, we come as your people before your word, um, saying that we don't have enough on our own. We don't have enough in our mind or in our heart um, to really um, navigate the world with wisdom. Um, we come humble before you, hungry before you, wanting to learn and grow. We want you to shake us up, change our minds, um, pull us out of ourselves and near to you. And we come that, that way before your word, um, but also today. And Lord, um, just use our brother, your servant Aaron, as he preaches. Give him clarity. Give him passion, give him sensitivity, give him grace, um, give him love for you, for us, and just use him today and the, the other times that he'll preach. Um, we're thankful for in your sovereign plan you've given him to us, and Lord, um, we pray that we would um, listen to him, listen to you through him today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Good morning, cars. Glad to see y'all today. Uh, this text, this topic of divorce, uh, it can be tough. It can be tense to talk about. Uh, one expert I talked to this week, he estimated that somewhere between 30 and 40% of Americans have been through a divorce in their lives. And so it's highly likely that everyone in this auditorium has been impacted by divorce in some way or another. Whether that was you personally, whether that was your parents or a family member, whether that was one of your close friends going through a divorce. So with, with that said, I want to start off this sermon with just a few kind of pastoral considerations. Number one, uh, the name of our church, Karis. It comes from this Greek word, which means grace. And I want you to know right off the bat, no matter how you have been affected, impacted by divorce in your life, there is faithful love and abundant redemption in Jesus. 
I want you to know that there's grace and there's a place for you at Cardis. I've had family members who have been through divorce. Uh, and unfortunately, it's so greatly affected their relationship to their church that to this day, they're nearly incapable of finding a church home. So under no circumstances do I want this sermon or any application of this sermon to create some kind of second-class citizen or drive people away from Jesus and this congregation. Number two, second pastoral consideration. This sermon isn't for one specific kind of person. I'm not up here to subtweet people who've been divorced. I'm not here to talk trash about your family. When Jesus first gave this sermon, there were giant crowds listening in along with his disciples. Some of whom were married and unmarried. Some of whom were probably divorced and others who were not divorced. So this passage is not just for divorced people. Jesus here is teaching all of his people. Whether you've been married for decades or days. Whether you're engaged, getting married soon. Whether you're single and hoping to get married someday. Or single and have no desire to get married someday. Whether you're remarried if you're a follower of Jesus, this passage is for you. It's for all of us together. And then one final pastoral consideration. At Carus, uh, we are a people who are devoted to Scripture. We believe that God's Spirit works through His Word. That's why we preach through whole passages and whole books of the Bible. If I picked and chose my pet passage every week, we hear a lot of sermons about nonviolence and how government and Christians relate to each other. But the whole Bible is God's Word, which means that we need to hear all of it, even if those passages can be hard to hear sometimes. I can tell you, um, I've been preaching a lot more this summer, and even with other sermons before this, I've had today circled on my calendar for months. I've been studying and praying over, meditating on, writing the sermon for months. And I want to do my very best to treat our passage and to treat you all as my people with the care that's needed. So right here at the beginning, I want to invite you, challenge you, plead with you even, where I step on your toes and say something in a way that's not as gracious as I could have, please forgive me. At the same time, when Jesus' words, when Scripture steps on our toes, we have to move our feet. When we're challenged by Jesus and His word, regardless of how we're at or how it hits us, we have to obey. So with all that said, let's dive into our text. Like the last couple passages, like the next couple passages, this passage has two parts. A confrontation and a clarification. You've heard it said, but I say. I think as we examine this passage, three questions should pop into our mind. With a fourth question applying our understanding of the first three. Here are the four questions. Number one. 
what teaching about divorce is Jesus confronting? Number two, how does Jesus and all of Scripture clarify our understanding of divorce? Number three, why does Jesus even care this much about divorce? And then number four, how can we care well as a church for those who have been impacted by divorce? So let's start with that first question. It stems from verse 31. What is Jesus confronting? Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So similarly to today, heated debates on how Bible passages should be interpreted and applied were common in Jesus' day. There are many traditions within the Christian faith. We argue about how should we baptize? What do we think about the Lord's Supper? How should we run our churches? And there were several distinct traditions even in Jesus' day. Distinctions, distinct traditions of Judaism. Back then, one of the most heated debates was about divorce and how to interpret divorce law in the Torah. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, this isn't even the, the only time that Jesus will address divorce. Let's also look at a later passage in Matthew chapter 19, because there's a lot of crossover there with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This passage is illuminating and helps clarify some of the things that are also going on in the Sermon on the Mount. But we should also look at Deuteronomy, that central verse at the heart of this debate in Deuteronomy 24. Here's what we read. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. This is the law at the center of this debate. And the key phrase is, because he has found some indecency in her. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, we kind of have two parties, two schools of thought that have formed. One famous rabbi, he says, the phrase some indecency means sexual immorality, sexual sin. And another famous rabbi says, some indecency means anything that the husband doesn't like. And within the writings of that rabbi, he says that these are some things that are acceptable reasons to get a divorce. Your wife burned your man. Or you just happen to see someone who you think is more attractive. Unfortunately, it is that latter interpretation 
that had become common practice for Jesus' original hearers. It's the heart of the question that the Pharisees ask about when they confront Jesus. When Jesus says, you've heard it said, here's the answer to that first question. He's confronting the desire of people, most oftentimes husbands, to use women and their marriages to fulfill their selfish desires. I do say most oftentimes husbands and not exclusively husbands because, believe it or not, there are historical examples of women divorcing their husbands, though it was rare. As Christians, we're called to cherish people and use things. But too often, we try to use people and cherish things. A quick aside. Uh, Jesus speaks into this debate between the two rabbis, and he sides with the former. He says, divorce only in cases of sexual immorality. And this aside, it's not specifically about divorce, but it's a good opportunity to remind ourselves how to think and interact in a divided world. There are two sides in this debate. Divorce only for one reason, divorce for any reason. A lot of times today we might, we rightly, resist partisan Jesus by wrongly insisting on a moderate middle way Jesus. We rightly say, well, Jesus isn't in this camp or that camp. That doesn't make him a moderate or a compromising teacher either. Jesus does not, cannot, will not fit into our boxes. We try to find out where Jesus is on our political spectrum or whatever. And Jesus is somewhere else entirely. And sometimes he'll overlap. Sometimes we'll overlap. Like Jesus does with this rabbi. But as Christians, we need to spend far less time figuring out what box we fit in. Because we don't fit in any. And we're called to be something else entirely. Back to the question of divorce. I looked up some, some surveys this week of some of those common reasons that people get divorces. And what might Jesus say if you were preaching today? If we went out and listened to the Sermon on the Quad. You've heard it said, the romance is dead. You've heard it said, I'm tired of arguing all the time. You've heard it said, we just got married too young before we knew who we were and what we wanted. You've heard it said, I didn't realize that his passion or his calling wouldn't make very much money. You've heard it said, I didn't realize that her health would take a turn for the worse. Now certainly, absolutely, romance, communication, maturity, finances, health, these are not small things. And when they come up in, as issues in a marriage, they have to be addressed with gentleness and kindness. But Jesus still confronts. And he says, look, marriage is not something to be taken lightly. This commitment, this covenant, is supposed to last your whole life. Marriage doesn't exist through your self-gratification. Karsh Church, when we say that Jesus is king, we mean even over our desires, our relationships, and our marriages. So Jesus confronts the natural human desire to use marriage in pursuit of the selfish end. 
What then does he say to clarify our understanding about divorce? Let's read verse 32. So I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And just so we don't get confused and think Jesus is primarily focused on the adultery of women, let's remember what he said in Matthew 19. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus' Jesus' commands stand for all of us. Part-time, I teach a couple of uh, middle school Bible classes at a local Christian school. And I took my students through the Sermon on the Mount this past year, uh, including these verses. Heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson, he's famous for saying, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And similarly, every teacher has a lesson plan until their sixth grader looks at them and asks if their divorced mom is an adulteress. Talk to me after class. In our passage, Jesus clarifies and corrects our teaching, our thinking on divorce, and says that there's one exception to his prohibition on divorce. Cases of sexual immorality. Let's part on this for just a second, because I know that this term, this word, needs some clarification. When Matthew writes sexual immorality, he's using this word pornan. Maybe you've heard that word before. Or maybe you already recognize where that word pops up in our English language. Porneia is where we get our word pornography. This word encompasses quite a lot. But here's where I think we ought to understand it generally and particularly in this passage where Jesus is speaking. Sexual immorality, porneia, means any sexual expression outside the bounds of the marriage covenant. Any sexual expression outside the bounds of the marriage covenant. Now, I know that some of us are starting to get uncomfortable. Jesus only gives us one reason for divorce, sexual sin. But kind of, again, quickly, I want to look at a couple of other Passages that inform our understanding of biblically acceptable reasons for divorce. It's easy, it's tempting for us to take the Gospels, take the Sermon on the Mount, the red letters in our Bible, and make a like a Bible within the Bible, a canon within the canon of the Scripture. That's not how we're supposed to view the Bible. Everything, the whole thing, from Genesis to Revelation is inspired by the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And so when Paul teaches on divorce, that's Jesus' words. And when the Old Testament teaches about divorce, those are Jesus' words. The whole Bible gives us two other acceptable reasons for divorce. In cases where a non-Christian spouse abandons their Christian spouse, and in cases of abuse or neglect, in that first case, let's look at 1 Corinthians 7. Here's what Paul says. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So scripture makes this legitimate exception for a non-believing spouse who is unwilling to reconcile. And then also cases of abuse or neglect. Let's look at Exodus 21 quickly. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male servants do. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, bear with me for just a second, because it can be difficult to determine the principle behind laws about slavery and polygamy. But even someone who would have been on the bottom rung of the social ladder, a female slave, she was entitled to covenant care and love in her marriage. Exodus says that if the husband was not willing to provide for her physical well-being or relational intimacy, that she could leave without penalty. When we think about abuse or neglect, those are the active and passive forms of failing to consider a spouse's physical need for relational intimacy. Now don't misinterpret Jesus' words or the, the words of the rest of Scripture. We can take these examples, we can take these exceptions, and go right back to doing what the Pharisees were doing. Does X qualify as failing to meet my relational need, my physical need, burning my dinner? That made me angry. Relational need, not then. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about these very serious violations of the covenant. He's not saying that any and every ground for divorce ought to result in divorce. That's what the Pharisees did in Matthew 19. Jesus, they come up to Jesus like, Jesus, why did Moses command us to divorce our wives? And Jesus is like, do you even hear yourselves? Moses didn't command you. He made you a concession because he knew about the sin in your hearts. In any teaching on divorce in the Bible, divorce is never commanded, but it is sometimes allowed. Reconciliation of spouses is always the highest goal. And divorce is biblically acceptable under the gravest violations of that marriage covenant. Adultery, abandonment, abuse. And especially in those cases of domestic abuse. Though our orientation as Christians is forgiveness and enemy love, that may well have to take place while an abuser is being legally punished for their sin. Remember, Jesus is a king over our desires, our relationships, our marriages. He's a good king who cares for the vulnerable and will one day eradicate evil and abuse. Okay. I realize we've already covered not just a lot of stuff, but a lot of heavy stuff. Jesus confronts 
our selfish desires that tempt us to use our spouses and marriages selfishly. Then through his word, he clarifies the limited scenarios in which divorce is acceptable. But why is it, here's our third question, why is it that Jesus cares so much about this topic? Why does he have a sharp correction for how divorce is being practiced? Here's why. Jesus cares so much about divorce because Jesus cares so much about marriage. One commentary I read this week said, divorce confuses the church because marriage confuses the church. So what is marriage? I think we'd all say that we know it if we saw it. But what if we had to condense all of the teachings and examples that the Bible gives us regarding marriage and just some concise description or definition? What would that be? And you may not consider this to be concise, but here's what Scripture shows us marriage is. Marriage is a lifelong, one flesh, covenant union between two sexually different persons. It serves as the only proper context for human sexual expression, one of many contexts for relational intimacy, and is oriented towards multiplication, either physically via procreation or spiritually via discipleship. Marriage is apocalyptic in nature in that it reveals and models this spiritual reality of Jesus' relationship to his people. I should also point out what's not in this description. There's nothing about marriage being a requirement or a goal for spiritual maturity and human flourishing. If you're single, whether because you've never been married or because you've been divorced, you know, know that God isn't waiting around for you to take your life seriously and settle down. Marriage is simply for folks who God has called together to commit their lives to. It's not a checkpoint or a stepping stone to the next stage of life. A friend once told me, marriage displays a picture of the gospel. Singleness displays the sufficiency of the gospel. Well, look at that overall picture the Bible gives us regarding marriage. There's so much that we could unpack. Union, covenant, one flesh, sexuality, intimacy, multiplication. But the element that we need to focus on as it pertains to our passage today is the apocalyptic nature of marriage. What do I mean by that? I know there's some folks in here who are either newlyweds or they're soon-to-be-weds, and you're thinking, apocalyptic? What am I getting myself into? What did I get myself into? Don't freak out. Your marriage is not going to usher in the end times or something like that. What I mean is that in the Bible, this word apocalypse is used to describe revelation, something being revealed. In fact, you could just as well call that last book of the Bible the apocalypse of John. Not because it describes the end of the world, the end of history, though it does but because it reveals spiritual things that are going on in spiritual spaces. God pulls back the curtain for John. He reveals how he's in control 
in the midst of chaos and persecution. So similarly, when men and women enter into marriage with one another, they pull back the curtain on a spiritual reality. Let's read a passage from Ephesians, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does with the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, to answer that third question, why does Jesus care so much about divorce? Because marriage reflects something spiritual and eternal about how Jesus cares for us. That's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians. Hey, your marriage isn't just about you. Let me pull back the curtain. Are you ready for an apocalypse? Husbands, the way you love and serve and cherish your wives shows everyone just a fraction of the way that Jesus cares for us. Wives, the way you love and serve and respect your husbands shows everyone around you just a fraction of the way that we're supposed to follow Jesus. One of the reasons why divorce is taken so seriously is because we can risk misleading people about the way Jesus cares for us or the way we're supposed to follow him. Like what Jesus was confronting, we tell the world that Jesus might not always show us faithful love. We risk telling the world that there's something that could happen, something we could do, where his grace may run out, or his redemption may not be plentiful. We could be telling the world that, hey, like, Jesus is great and all, but there's other stuff that uh, I can find my rest and my satisfaction in, but church there is not. Now, obviously, None of us will be perfect like Jesus. Guys will never be perfect husbands. Ladies, you'll never be perfect wives. That's why in those most serious situations, Jesus does allow divorce to happen. But Jesus takes marriage and divorce seriously because how we relate to one another in marriage is a testimony of how Jesus relates to us. So like I said at the beginning, all of these biblical truths, we've read so many passages this morning, should lead us to ask one more question about application. How can we as a church care well for those who have been through a divorce or been impacted by divorce? Seeing as how we're in the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's only appropriate that we revisit a few Beatitudes that we spent so much time in. So for starters, Blessed are those who mourn, 
Let's be a church that mourns divorce well and mourns with those who have been impacted by divorce. And then should be beginning again that 30 to 40 percent of Americans have been through a divorce at some point in their lives. In some parts of our culture, divorce has become an occasion that actually gets celebrated with a party. Because of that, it can be really easy for us to become calloused towards the impact that divorce really does have on individuals and families. But the Bible tells us that divorce is never God's ideal option for marriage. Let's be a people who mourn well when divorce touches our family, our friends, our church, when we mourn with people. Second, blessed are the peacemakers. For many, divorce is the end of the line after continual, unresolved conflict. Before a divorce occurs, we can be a community who supports our family or our friends or our fellow church members by helping make peace between spouses where we are able. In fact, in many marriage ceremonies, there's a charge to the congregation, to those in attendance as witnesses, to support the couple. It's not a charge that we can take lightly. But then, for many others, divorces, life after a divorce, can be highly contentious, especially when it relates to things like children and finances. This is another opportunity for us to care well for those who've been impacted by divorce by encouraging forgiveness, even facilitating, in the best ways that we can, peace between parties. I know that's a lot easier said than done, but it is our calling for Christians. Then finally, blessed are the merciful. Karis, as I said earlier, I have those in my own family who've gone through divorce, biblically justified divorce at that, but were never received back into their churches the same way. This is an example that we cannot afford to follow. And by God's grace, I, I think this is an area of application where we've excelled. There are members, beloved brothers and sisters in our church who have gone through divorce. And they're still around. So I think they would tell you that they've experienced the mercy and grace of Jesus here. Another part of showing mercy to divorcees is understanding what the possibilities of remarriage are. The testimony of Scripture is that someone who has been biblically divorced for biblically acceptable reasons it's biblically acceptable for them to remarry. I know not every church or every person agrees with that, um, but I think, I think that is the overall testimony of Scripture to us. So mourning, peacemaking, mercy. Karis, we must be a church that cares well for those who've been impacted by divorce because Jesus cares well for those who've been impacted by divorce. He is our king. And so, like we talked about last week, we owe him allegiance in every aspect of our, mar of, of our lives, our desires, our relationships, our marriage. He's a good king who takes care of his people. In so many ways, 
marriages within the body of Christ reflect how he loves his people. Some of whom have gone through divorce. He lived, giving us an example of humility and obedience. He died, sacrificing himself for us, his bride, to redeem us and to purify us. And then he rose from the dead to share his own power and life with us. Cards. Jesus is the one who will never leave or forsake. He's faithful in sickness or health, poverty or wealth. He leads with love and will never abuse or abandon. Jesus is the perfect covenant partner. Till in death we are raised, never to be parted. Let's pray. Father, uh, we bless your name this morning. Let us see your Son and your Spirit more clearly today through your Word. God, today your Word has challenged us, so many of us, in deeply personal ways. I pray that in the midst of conviction in our body this morning, whether by divorcing our spouse or failing to care well for divorced people, that we would still see and experience all the compassion and grace Jesus offers us. Lord, as we continue to worship this morning, um, just give us unity around your table. Give us a spirit of repentance and faith as we remember what Jesus has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.